So Money episode 1126, Heather Cabot, author of the award-winning book, The New Chardonnay, the unlikely story of how marijuana went mainstream. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Once I started to meet some of the people who were behind that and to learn their stories and really kind of the crazy risks that they took to get into this industry, I thought, wow, this is a really juicy story. I want to I wanna learn more and potentially write a book about it. The story of how marijuana went mainstream is one about business, race, politics, and a culture in transition. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. We're exploring the world of pot today, (laughs) something that I didn't really think we would do at this point in 2020, but here we are. I've found an incredible guest, Heather Cabot, who is the author of the new book, The New Chardonnay, an unlikely story of how marijuana went mainstream. Heather is an award-winning journalist, former ABC News correspondent, and anchor. Her book, The New Chardonnay, has been named a Good Morning America must read and has earned praise from Publishers Weekly, Booklist, and Katie Couric for its deep reporting and entertaining storytelling. Heather takes us behind the scenes to this massive industry from Snoop Dogg to Martha Stewart to suburbia, how this unlikely drug became widely accepted and legal in many states. Here's Heather Cabot. Heather Cabot, welcome to So Money. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. The New Chardonnay. That is your new book, The Unlikely Story of How Marijuana Went Mainstream. I'm in New Jersey, Heather, and we just legalized marijuana here. I'm not a marijuana user, but I'm now thinking I might try it because I can and I hear so many benefits. Unlike what I grew up with, the message was don't do drugs and marijuana was sort of like the gateway drug. What changed uh, bringing us to your book? What was the pivot? Because now everybody from Martha Stewart to moms at pickup line at the school are, are talking of marijuana. Well, I first of all, I just want to say I'm in the same boat. You know, I, I I'm not a consumer myself. I grew up in the just say no generation, and really, the inspiration for this book um, was that I was looking around in 2017 and noticing the things that you're talking about. Uh, you know, everybody from Oprah Magazine featuring THC infused tea parties to Gwyneth Paltrow talking about cannabis at her Goop conference, and. I just couldn't believe it. And then when I found out that there were some women um, in my network and women who I had interviewed for my first book, Geek Girl Rising, who were starting to make their own investments in these companies, I, that really floored me because I thought, why would they be investing in something federally illegal? So, of course, I started working the phones and learned that there was this business that was really exploding um, in the rest of the country that I really knew nothing about. And once I started to meet some of the people who were behind that and to learn their stories and 
really kind of the crazy risks that they took to get into this industry, I thought, wow, this is a really juicy story. I want to I want to learn more and potentially write a book about it. Um, but to your question, I mean, I think there are a confluence of, of factors uh, that have played out. I mean, number one, I think when Colorado and Washington um, legal became the first two states to legalize uh, recreational use in 2012, um, it really created this opportunity for people to see that you could actually make real money doing this. Mm-hmm. And in an environment that was heavily regulated, uh, very much, you know, taxed by the state, it, you know, these these were businesses that were generating, you know, ultimately millions of dollars in tax revenue for states, creating lots of jobs. Um, so I think right there, that opportunity really changed a lot of people's minds. And then, of course, you have right around the same time, um, you, you, you started to see mainstream media start to pay attention to the potential therapeutic benefits in a very serious way around um, medical applications of cannabis. And in the book, I talk about this kind of watershed moment um, in the summer of 2013 when CNN aired a documentary that was hosted by Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And actually, so many of the characters in the book talk about this. They remember um, watching the documentary, which featured uh, the little girl in Colorado, uh, Charlotte Figgy, who unfortunately recently passed away, who was helped by what ultimately would would be called Charlotte's Web, which was a high CBD strain of of cannabis uh, that was able to mitigate um, her very serious seizures. And this this, uh, documentary really explained that. And at the end, Dr. Gupta came on the set and apologized and basically said that, you know, he, like so many others in the medical community, had really um, dismissed the potential efficacy of, of cannabis and cannabinoids, the, the uh, phytochemicals in the plant, um, and, and, you know, essentially said that this needs to have a, a more serious look. And so, so you had that, you had big business all coming around at the same time, and then a number of things happening in terms of, you know, the political landscape shifting. And so that's brought us to this point, which is just amazing to me, again, given, you know, that I grew up in the 80s, that 60% of Americans now endorse marijuana legalization. Um, that's a, a statistic that just came out last week uh, from Gallup and it is the highest level of acceptance that it, since Gallup started tracking um, attitudes about marijuana since 1969. Comparatively, is there something else in our history that that compares to the the flip, the the societal flip that we did on marijuana, the rebranding, the now like widely accepted drug that was once positioned as, you know, a lose, like what, I don't even know, like I mean, basically I was told to uh, never take it as a kid, it, like to Sanjay Gupta's point, you know, it was for stoners, right? It's a stoners drug. Is there anything like this that has happened in our, in our history? Well, I mean, I think alcohol is probably the closest. Uh, mm-hmm. And actually in the book, I talk about how, and I didn't know this until I started researching this, but um, in Colorado, one of the main arguments that ultimately convinced voters to pass legalization in Colorado was that activists started making the case uh, that, that, weed essentially was safer than alcohol in terms of the effects on society. And people really bought into that and ultimately voted for Proposition 64. Um, But when you look back at, you know, at alcohol prohibition, and I also thought this was really interesting, um, you know, even during prohibition, during those years, people were still able to get prescriptions 
for alcohol to treat certain ailments. And I learned there's this, um, now I'm going to forget the name of the book, but there's a, a, a wonderful book about uh, prohibition. It sort of is the, the you know, the, uh, I'm going to look for the title. Oh, it's called Last Call and it's by Daniel Ockren. <laughs> and it's a famous book. It was actually made into a Ken Burns um, documentary, but he talks about how Walgreens, the drugstore chain became such a huge brand and huge business because it was one of the pharmacies that actually wrote prescriptions for alcohol during mm-hmm. prohibition. So it's so cannabis actually follows some of that, right? You know, it's sort of, it, it, it evolves out of this, you know, sort of medical, um, uh, you know, medical applications and this idea that, well, you know, maybe it isn't bad for you. Of course, we now know, you know, that alcohol, obviously, um, I mean, you can go down the list of, of how bad alcohol is for you. And we are, that's the other thing that's happening too, is we're starting to see younger generations move away from drinking. And that's why you're seeing companies like Constellation Brands, for example, uh, which is the maker of um, Corona beer and Svedka vodka and Mondavi wines. They made a huge investment in canopy growth, which is actually one of the stories that I talk about in um, in the book. Canopy growth would go on to become one of the large, the first publicly traded cannabis company in the world and still one of the largest. Um, and Constellation made a huge bet in canopy um, several years ago because they were hoping that they would be able to create these THC and CBD infused beverages, which by the way, will be hitting the market this summer. Hmm. So it's very, it's interesting how both of those things sort of intersect, but um, yeah, to your question, I mean, I think alcohol would probably be the closest thing that I can think of off the top of my head. I'll tell you why I voted for the legalization of marijuana in New Jersey recently, Heather, and it had of course a lot to do with, the science now saying so much about the benefits, uh, the medical benefits. And I also didn't want to see more black men go to jail for this, which is a big reason we have a overpopulation of black men in, in, in the prison system. And so did that come up in your reporting at all? You know, the implications that legalizing marijuana would have on racial justice. Absolutely. I mean, that's a major theme that I address in the book. Um, And it actually was one of the things that also drew me to this topic, uh, because I've just always been someone who is interested in social justice. Um, I think one of the things that the new Chardonnay really exposes for people is that this industry, despite the fact that brown and black people have been disproportionately uh, targeted by the war on cannabis in this country. And as you referenced, you know, they, they are, you know, filling up and have filled up our, our prisons um, on these low level drug charges. Um, despite that fact, those communities are not necessarily benefiting from the green rush. And what I talk about in the book is how, you know, the way this industry has evolved, mostly because it is still federally illegal, which creates this conundrum, you know, between this conflict between the state and, and the federal government. It's really cut out a lot of people who did not have their own personal resources to get into this business early. So overwhelmingly, when you look at the people who are helming the largest multi-state uh, operators in the U.S. right now, they are run by white wealthy men. Um, it, it, you know, and that 
that is something that when you, it is something that people are talking about now. I certainly in New Jersey, um, that was a sticking point, you know, make, creating social equity, figuring out a way to make sure that um, not only that these communities benefit directly in terms of economic develop, but development, but also the fact that that black and brown founders actually get a chance to become owners of these businesses. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen is that hasn't that hasn't happened, even though some states have really tried to put some of those programs in place. Um, they haven't been really successful yet. And um, and for, for a variety of reasons. But one of the biggest reasons is be, because cannabis is still federally illegal, you can't get a small business loan. And most institutional investors are on the sidelines. So you can't you can't get a loan. And so unless you're somebody that has really deep pockets or you have a lot of rich friends or, you know, a rich uncle, you're not going to be one of those people that is going to be able to certainly in the early days, you were not one of those people that could compete to um to apply for a cultivation license, for example, where you could be spending a million dollars just to be in the game. Um, And I go into that in the book through these characters. So I should say I'm getting very wonky here, but the book is very much focused on four really compelling characters. And I go into all of this through their stories. So yes, I agree with you. Um, You know, certainly looking at the racial injustices of the drug war, I think has been an incredible impetus um, for people to vote for legalization. It's going to be very interesting to see how the states deal with that. And another piece of that is the fact that in some places uh, where they've legalized, they, the states didn't put in provisions to pardon people or expunge people's records. So you have legalization in place and people able to start these businesses and people able to, you know, legally purchase cannabis while you still have other people that still have felonies on their records. That's a real problem. So I think certainly in New Jersey, uh, that's something that I, as the legislature grapples with how to roll out this program, that's going to be something to pay attention to. You interviewed Snoop Dogg for this book, right? Well, not really. I interviewed Ted Chung and a lot of his, I spent a lot of time with his entourage. Well, how was it hanging out with his entourage? Well, I think actually, you know, it's better to describe them. I'm realizing I really shouldn't describe them as entourage. I mean, they are his entourage, but more importantly, these, the person that I spent the most time with and who's a main character in the book um, is Ted Chung, who is Snoop's business partner and his longtime manager. And he is really the mastermind behind Snoop's cannabis investments. And a lot of people sort of think, you know, if Snoop is just being synonymous with being a stoner, but what many people don't know, and the story that I wanted to tell in the new Chardonnay was that he and his team were incredibly um, early in terms of seeing the opportunities of the industry beyond just the idea of growing the plant. They invested very early on in technology, for example. They realized that if this was going to be a legitimate industry, that you needed to have all of these picks and shovels to support it. So he and Ted Chung founded one of the very first venture capital funds to invest in, as I said, software, um, different types of testing technology, packaging, you know, all the sort of unsexy stuff that makes a business. And these guys were doing this you know, very early on, I mean, they first came up with the idea in around 2013, and they ultimately founded the the firm formally um, in 2015. Um, but they've continued to make very, very early and successful bets 
on some of the most innovative companies that support the industry. And I just thought that was a story that most people would never understand or even think about just because on the mm-hmm. surface, you wouldn't expect that. Um, and Ted, for his part, you know, is this Wharton trained um, entrepreneur uh, and investor who is, um, you know, not what you would expect as, as sort of Snoop's right-hand man. And um, through Ted, I was able to meet so many of the people in Snoop's orbit who um, had really um, helped him not only think about his cannabis investments, but also how to leverage his brand uh, into the cannabis space in the U.S. and also in Canada. Let's talk about money, Heather. When we were talking about bringing you on the show, you were very candid and you said that uh, you mentioned that you celebrated a big birthday this year, 2020, turning 50. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, but that only recently you felt like you came to terms with your money and you kind of felt like you finally mastered your money. And so um, tell us about that journey and what was the turning point for you? Well, I think it was funny. We were just having this conversation with our kids the other night and I just mm-hmm. got my kids. My kids are freshmen in high school. I'm boy, girl, twins. And we just set them up with their own debit cards. And, um, and we have been teaching them about investing. And we have been, it's actually, my sons is actually, well, both, both of them actually are really interested in investing now. And I was telling them the other night that no one ever talked to me about investing. I didn't understand. I didn't even really know what compound interest was until I was probably in my twenties. I, I really, no one ever, and my parents are both very well educated, but I think some of it was the times. I think that mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a woman. I, I just think that it wasn't something that certainly it wasn't something that I think was thought of as polite and money in general was something that we didn't have conversations about. Um, my parents, uh, you know, have been very successful that they were definitely, uh, they had me when they were really young. So I definitely remember the years, you know, we didn't have a lot, but, um, it wasn't a topic that we talked about. And I was even telling my kids, like, I don't even think that I started contributing to my 401k until I was probably in my late twenties. I didn't even think about it. And I was working in these, you know, sort of entry-level reporting jobs, TV reporting jobs. Mm -hmm. um, And I wasn't really saving. And I was just kind of thinking, oh, that's something I'll do later. And I, it didn't really occur to me that what I was saving then would ultimately multiply so much. And we were discussing this with the kids now that they have their bank accounts about, and, you know, are they going to, uh, do they want to put some of it into actually investing versus we were talking about interest rates in savings accounts and, and they're just, their grasp of money is so much more advanced than mine was certainly in high school. And I just think there are so many things that, um, Maybe I would have done differently, but I think a big part of it does play around gender. And um, I did not realize until I, you know, I think I I mentioned this to you that I was very fortunate to participate in the Pipeline Angels uh, training program, which is a a program to um, help women learn how to invest in early stage startups. And because I wasn't really somebody that ever really talked about wealth building, I mean, I just didn't think it was polite conversation. It was really interesting to suddenly be in a situation where that's what the whole, that's what we were talking about. Um, and it, 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 there I was, I think I was like in my mid forties and that was the first time that I was really getting this, um, very kind of rudimentary introduction to investing and understanding, um, 
a whole world that I didn't even know existed before. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wish I'd come to it much earlier in my life, but I'm, my husband and I are trying really hard to educate our kids now so they can think differently about their money and also just be comfortable talking about it. It sounds so basic, but we don't often, and, and I don't think it, I think it is generational, but I think unfortunately a lot of, um, the generational traditions repeat and we're seeing a lot of that show up even in the millennials lives where they're deferring financial management to their spouses. They're not, you know, negotiating for themselves. They're not investing. All of that is repeating uh, because history does repeat. You have to learn it. It doesn't just happen just because we're living in modern times. You mentioned, you know, what you wish you had knew, known or did. I'm curious because I'm I'm 10 years behind and I'm looking at my 40s as really an opportunity, the decade to fine tune, accelerate some of my investments, just to put more toward. Now that I know, you know, that I like retirement isn't that far away. Like I got to really get certain things in motion or more in motion. And I'm really set on trying to retire by 60, if not sooner, that's aggressive. But like, what does that look like? And I'm, I'm manipulating all the calculators. Um, but what would you have told yourself at 40? Financial advice. Ooh, well, my goodness, my family would laugh that you're asking me for my financial advice. But I know, I think, look, I think, well, first of all, I mean, this is what you do for a living. So you can't, you feel confident in, you know, even speaking the language of finance. I mean, I think for me, that was like, it was, it was, and the fact that, I, by the way, the fact that I'm writing about business now, yeah. my family is like, my mother actually said to me after she read the new Chardonnay, she said, I was really impressed about you, you know, your mastery of, you know, how you were explaining venture capital. Um, <laughs> but um, I think the big thing is, you know, and this is, I don't think it's just for when you're 40. I think it's in general. I just think it's this idea of paying yourself first. I think that's mm-hmm. such an important concept. Um, especially as you get into your forties and you have just more things that you want to do, you probably have more financial freedom in your forties too. And I think just kind of always going back to those, um, to those goals. I think, I think it's important to not get yourself too emotional about what's happening in, in, in the markets. I mean, right now it is, it is, it's easy to just like every single day follow what's happening because it's, we're just living in such a crazy time right now. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think you have to kind of look at the long term, and that's more for mental health too. If you're doing all the things that you that you need to do, obviously diversifying your portfolio and following the news. You know, my I'm married to somebody who's a former 60 Minutes producer, and uh, and both of us are reporters. And you know, I, I love the way my husband kind of thinks about all of this too, because he really he really sees the intersection of what's happening in the world to what's happening in the markets. And I mean, that's just the way he thinks about it. And that's the way I think about it too. And that we're trying to help our kids think about it that way too. You can't sort of divorce the two. It's all, it's all the same thing. Everything is interrelated these days. So I think it's really important to kind of, you know, take that kind of global view, but not get so emotional about it that you're, that you're worried. Because I feel like right now, I would guess a lot of the people you're talking to right now also, and there's just so much uncertainty in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate the reminder to pay yourself first, not to be confused with buy yourself stuff first, which I tended to do a lot in my 20s and even last night. Um, Yeah, it's really hard to not only put away money for yourself intentionally 
and I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs who are listening who, you know, um, it's one thing to get paid consistently a paycheck, uh, but it's another to get lump sum payments every six weeks or every four months or whatever your cadence is in your business. And you finally get that money and you have all these bills to pay. Uh, But yeah, so it's hard to kind of very consciously say, okay, I'm taking 10% or 15% and putting it away, but then to not spend it (laughs) is the other challenge. It's not fun to just save, you know, but I'm telling everybody now as a 40 year old going on 41, that no one arrives at any stage in life, 40, 50, 60 and says, gosh, you know, I just saved too much money. Right. I don't think that's ever been said out loud. I think that's true. And I would just add to when you talk about things, uh, one of our big philosophies in our family, uh, by the way, me and my husband and I are about to celebrate 20 years married. So we've known each other a long time and this has definitely been an evolution. Um, But the other thing that our, you know, our spending, I think we try to really keep it in line with our, with our values. And so as an example, we tend to, when we do spend money, we spend it on experiences. Mm-hmm. So like we took our kids last year to Vietnam and Cambodia on this amazing trip. And we went to go see Angkor Wat and we, it was an amazing trip. And so we, when we do spend money, we really think about it in terms of like, how are we creating memories as opposed to kind of like stuff I feel so fortunate that we can even have those kinds of experiences. And I'm, we, you know, I really hope someday we'll be able to get back to them too, you know, in this post pandemic world, but travel and family vacations, um, seeing, you know, our extended family to me, that, that means more than anything. And I think our kids feel that way too. Um, so I think that's also important too, as you think about saving and spending, you know, what are you really spending it on and where are you going to get the most joy I think mm-hmm. for us, that's that's something that we're really on the same page about. Congrats on 20 years. And absolutely, I, it reminds me of advice that a guest gave me on this show, Bill Perkins, who wrote the great book, Die With Zero. It's all about how to make the most of your financial life in your living years, as opposed to just saving for the sake of saving to die with an inheritance that you'll never see really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um but he says to build up your memory bank, um, you know, th- that your bank of memories is something that can never be too high. And it's the sort of thing that once the memory bank is filled with a memory, you can always go back to that memory. It's like this gift that keeps on giving. It's that, it, you know, enjo- enjoying and going down memory lane and recounting those memories with your loved ones. It's this like ongoing asset and that never diminishes. Now, and especially now, right? When we can't yeah. travel and we can't see our family. I mean, I we talk about it all the time and how lucky we were that we went on the trip or even the fact that we had, um, we actually, so I'm Jewish and my husband is Hindu and we decided to have a B'nai Mitzvah for our twins and a Jenya, which is a coming of age ceremony in, in his faith. And we weren't going to do a big thing. And we were like, well, why not? Let's just do it. And, you know, his family came, my family came and it was the year before the pandemic. It was the spring of 2019. And we have those memories now. Mm-hmm. We brought our whole fan. We brought our family together from all over the country. And that was a really special thing. So I, I agree. I think those memories, I mean, I, I'm leaning on those memories right now. I'm so sad that we're not going to be able to be with our family for, for Thanksgiving. Um, so I, I fully agree with that. And then the only other 
point I would add, of course, is philanthropy and giving back and making sure that, you know, while you're budgeting for everything else that you can, no matter what is meaningful to you, but that you can feel like you're contributing to causes and people in need. And I mean, you know, there's real joy in that. And, you know, off, I think it's, it's often been said, but I really think it's true that, you know, the person who's actually making the gift gets more out of it than the person that's receiving it. I think it's really true. Yeah, there was a Harvard study that said even just spending $5 on someone else for the good of somebody else, maybe it's you get your friend a cup of coffee or maybe not now, but you send them a $5 gift card to Starbucks or whatever, or a local coffee shop, it actually makes you happier. So that saying that money doesn't make you happy or more money doesn't make you happier. It's not that true because if money is spent right on experiences, on helping other people, it definitely does elevate your sense of fulfillment in life. So if for no other reason. (laughs) And I'm all about karma, you know, and getting good out into the world. And, um, you know, and like I said earlier, I mean, like, or maybe I didn't say, but, you know, I really was kind of the least likely person to write about, about the marijuana industry and marijuana in general. Like people are, are like, I barely even like drink and people are like, <laughs> but on the other hand though, I think I was kind of the right person to come yeah. in as a voyeur and look under the hood and see what was happening because I, I, you know, I, I do come at it with trying to put good in, into the world. I mean, I felt like this was a story that needed to be told for a variety of reasons. Um, and, and we talked about the social justice piece of it. I think that is so important. I think people don't necessarily realize um, that, that there are people who really should be benefiting from this industry who are being left out. And that was that was something I really wanted to address um, in 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 the new Chardonnay, along with everything else, and you know, sort of the juicy storytelling. But I felt like that was an important thing for me to put that out in the world, and you know, to spend more than three years getting my arms around cannabis. There mm. had to be something there that was giving me mm-hmm. passion about it, and it was it, it it a lot of it was was that, and also the fact that I just I am always very inspired by by entrepreneurs frankly and the risks that they take and the reasons that they they do what they do because it, particularly in this industry I mean they're putting it all on the line and so I find that really fascinating and also just I, I think it's motivating too even if you don't care about cannabis at all I just think that journey of the entrepreneur yeah because really and I have not read the whole book yet but it, it is about cannabis but really what you are unveiling is the narratives behind things like business and race and social norms and history, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I think it's very encouraging to, to know that something as what seemed so fixed and set, right? Like you're just, it's, it was branded. Good kids don't do drugs and cannabis was like the gateway drug and had this, this cloud over it that, it, that, that things can change. And you know, humans can change. And thanks to things like science, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the story's not over. Agreed. And I also think it's it's a great lesson for all of us to remember that we should always ask questions and always challenge the narrative, Ch- challenge the things that we've been told, try to understand why have we been told things. You know, why were, why were those messages given to us at that time? And what was the impact of that? And, um, I I think that more than anything really drew me to this. Everything that I thought I knew about this was the complete opposite from Mm. people, from the businesses that were being started, the motivations for people getting into this industry, even the people who use 
cannabis. It, it was so, uh, I always talk about it as this Alice in Wonderland moment. Mm-hmm. Well, it really was. And, and that's really humbling. And I think as a, a, you know, as a reporter, but also as a human being to, to realize that um, how important it is to not take things for granted that, that we're told and to look underneath the surface and understand what's really going on. So I hope that, that I hope the people who read the book will be entertained and, you know, it certainly is a fun read with lots of, lots of suspense, but at the same time, I hope that they'll come away with maybe a new understanding and a new um, perception of, of, you know, what this industry is all about and, and what it's becoming. Thanks so much, Heather Cabot. The book is The New Chardonnay, The Unlikely Story of How Marijuana went mainstream. Thanks so much for writing this. Thank you. And thanks for having me and have a good Thanksgiving. You can learn more about Heather on her website, heathercabot.com. Her book, The New Chardonnay is available everywhere. You can also follow Heather on social media, Instagram, heather.cabot. All this info is on the So Money Podcast website. And while you're there, click on Ask Farnoosh and leave me your question for our Friday episodes. And I'd love to hear what you think of the show. If you like the show, of course, I'd love for you to subscribe and leave a review. Let me know what you're enjoying. Every Friday, I pick a reviewer to receive a free 15-minute money session. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. And I hope your day is so money. Money.